Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, everybody, to Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher, and I'm excited because we have a very special edition of Center Court today. Normally, we have incredible guests on from all different walks of life, from the sports world, from we've had guests from the world of science and medicine. Uh, and that's one of my favorite things about Center Court is you never know who we're going to bring on and who we're going to chat with to go in depth. However, today is going to be a little bit different because we have an NBA Hall of Famer, a four-time NBA All-Star, the number one overall NBA draft pick, the Rookie of the Year, an All-Star Game MVP, the three-time College National Player of the Year, two-time Wooden Award winner. His number 50 was retired by the Virginia Cavaliers. I'm talking about my co-host, the one and only Ralph Sampson. We're going to go in-depth with you today, turn the tables on you. How you feel about that, Ralph? get my turn so I, I i don't know how i feel but i feel good but the only thing you missed on that list of accolades was i graduated in four years from the university of virginia so that's the probably the biggest thing i've, I've done you know that's uh, the most important to me absolutely i should have led with that he graduated it's okay uh, i forgive you I forgive okay you. thank you that's right i mean ralph does normally ask that i begin every podcast episode with that list of accolades uh however i felt it was most important today to do that uh no, so I'll, I'll get it right for the next one okay next one i'll give you I'll give you a, a second chance <laughs> okay perfect perfect well ralph uh, it's it's been a blast getting to know you over the last couple of years where we've hosted a radio show together now a podcast but today i want to get to know you even better uh so many people know about your incredible basketball career i've gotten to know you away from the game as as a man as a person and uh, a great one at that uh and i'm excited for our listeners to get to know Ralph Sampson a little bit better as well. So let's start at the very beginning. I mean, you grew up in Harrisonburg, Virginia on Myrtle Street. And for the listeners out there who've never been to Virginia or never been to Harrisonburg, tell us what is it like there? Describe what Harrisonburg, Virginia is like, your hometown. Oh, well, I mean, you know, back in the days of growing up in Harrisonburg, it was a small city, which still is. Uh, that was controlled mainly by what was then called Madison College, now James Madison University. Um, we would play basketball every day. There was a, a section of the town that we lived in was predominantly African-American. And we played basketball sports in the parks and rec. We played 
on the outdoor courts, the indoor courts. Uh, we had plenty of cousins and family all over the area, so you couldn't get any trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if you did, your uncle would beat you before your mom got you. <laughs> Dad got you. Um, so it was a, a village of people that grew up together, lived together, worked together, and loved uh, the way we did it back then. It was a kid's haven. Uh, very, very special uh, for me growing up in that era uh, and in that city. The, the house that we kind of grew up in, um, my grandfather and grandmother built on my dad's side. So a lot of history today, a lot of legacy still there, but the area was just, I mean, I thought it was a perfect scenario. And when I, you know, now having kids that grew up that you could be in a safe haven, kids could play in the street, they could play in the front yard. Uh, they could go to the parks and rec around the corner. Uh, my mom actually was the director of the parks and recs. My aunt, you know, ran the pool. So you want to go swimming, you go hang out with her. I worked at concession stand, worked the pool with her. I couldn't swim when I was younger. I uh, got thrown in by someone and got scared of the water. But other than that, it was the best place to 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 grow up for me. Wow, it really sounds like it. It sounds pretty uh, idyllic uh, place to grow up uh, and childhood. And I know you grew up on this family farm that has been in your family for a very long time. Uh, what what does the farm mean to you today? And also how did working on that farm really shape your work ethic? Well, you have to understand and and just alluded to my father's um, parents, my grandmother and grandfather, Ruby and Hampton Sampson that built the house that we moved into. And when I was a junior in high school and we took care of them after many, many years, they got sick. And and my, my, my grandmother, very special to me, uh, didn't get, me get, didn't get to see me play high school basketball at the highest level. Um, she got sick and passed away before that. Mm. My grandfather got to see me got to see me play that and play at the college level a little bit, and then you know passed away somewhat after that during my college career. But other than that, my mother's side of the family, George and Josephine Blakey, you know, had this farm in the '30s, uh, raised twelve children. As young kids, we would have to go there in the morning and either bail hay or pick potatoes or whatever, go in the garden, help my uncles out. It, but for us, it was fun. It wasn't work. Uh, it was camaraderie. It was a special time because your uncles taught you a lot of different things about life and hard work and understanding what you know it's meant to be to have a family and a large family like that one. So imagine not only 12 siblings on my mom's side, nine boys and three girls, all nine boys were in World War II. My grandfather was in World War I. Wow. And so the legacy is very, very deep on that side. But imagine 15 kids as cousins on my mom's side and her mother's side and 16 kids on my grandfather's side. So you're talking about first cousins deep on my mom's side, which was second cousins to me which we all seem like we were first cousins anyway. So yeah. Harrisonburg, Virginia was full of what I call the Blakey, Beasy, Moore, Washington uh, group of people. That became very special over the years because you walk down like I'm, somebody says, I'm your cousin. I'm like, I don't know you. <laughs> know, who, who are you? So it was fun to be able to do that, but also working, just working on the farm. And even today, having it still in the family, the legacy is very, very strong. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, really family first from the very beginning uh, is what it sounds like. And uh, how important was sports to you and and your family? I mean, there's so many, you said boys running around growing up together. Um, I know you've mentioned to me that baseball was actually your first love. Um, when did you start playing sports, both for fun and then competitively? And uh, uh, when was your first kind of introduction to the game of basketball? Well, I mean, first and foremost, uh, family preached the education. Uh, mm -hmm. You had to be educated. And we had two, um, actually three aunts that were teachers. Um, and uh, everybody was uh, in that education mode from the farm to the classroom. Uh, my mother went to college at Virginia State University. Um, and so that was very deep in there. Too. So we preached the education initially. Sports came secondary. Uh, we had to do our homework before we could go to the park. Mm -hmm. You know, my father worked from three to 11. My mother worked from nine to five. One with the accounting, my mom was in the accounting department. My dad worked in a, in a place where they made aluminum doors and windows. And if your homework wasn't done, and when my mom came home, and you didn't go out until it got done. And she would come get you and, and make sure it got done from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the background there from education to sports, um, my mother played basketball. Uh, as the story goes, they put a hoop on the tree on the farm so she could shoot baskets, you know, just a, a basket. It wasn't a backboard. It was on the, on the side of a tree. Oh, wow. uh, my uncle, the youngest uncle of the, of the, of the, of the crew, you know, he pitched um, with a very good pitcher in the, in, the, in the league than the league that they had in the Harrisonburg area. Probably could have pitched in the, in the, in the minor leagues, uh, but, you know, I didn't have those chances back then. But he, he threw a fastball and he threw a curve and he actually taught me some things, you know, as a young kid. And he would put a, 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 a bullseye on the barn itself and say, throw in that bullseye and hit the middle of the bullseye. And that's where he learned how to pitch and how to put the ball where it needs to go. So I love baseball growing up. My mother did. My uncles did. Uh, we played in the little leagues. We played in what is called the Pony League. And I pitched uh, due to my uncle's support and help. And though when you are, you know, growing like a weed and and your arms is a little lax <clears throat> and you pitch in sidearm, which the ball is supposed to curve on a left hand or right hand batter and it stops curving and you're pitching pretty fast and hard, they tell you, well, you can't pitch anymore because you're hitting too many batters. <laughs> so they moved me to first base. And being tall at first base, I could catch anything over there that anybody threw. But sometimes I was catching with my ungloved hand mm -hmm. that my mom said, basically, boy, you're going to break your hand and fingers if you keep doing that. So you have to catch. Then they moved me to outfield. This was probably in my you know, middle school years, moved me to outfield. And there wasn't a lot of, a lot of action in, in the outfield. So I got tired of baseball. And then that's when I focused strictly on basketball. Wow. Well, it could have been Ralph Sampson, the, the pitcher, if you just could get that ball to curve, you know? Well, I mean, you know, could have been the seven foot four pitcher. Yeah. Hey. Fastball and halfway to the plate would have been dangerous. I guess I would have got hit by a couple <laughs> balls every now and then. But yeah, it, it was fun. Baseball was fun. I, I love the game of baseball. I love to watch it even today, but it just got boring to me playing in outfield. 
Well, you were six seven by the ninth grade and grew to seven one while still in high school. And I know from even your Hall of Fame enshrinement uh, speech that you gave, uh, your high school coach meant a lot to you. Your high school basketball coach, Roger Burgey. You tell us a little bit uh, about him and the influence that he had on your life, not just the game of basketball. Well, there was a lot of people, you know, if you can imagine the community I'm speaking about, there are a lot of people that had influence mm-hmm. on all of us that grew up from my mom and dad to my uncles and aunts to school teachers to, you know, our rec league coaches as well. I mean, I recall, you know, we could only score 16 points in a rec league game on an eight foot basket. So I would have 16 points in the first quarter and whether <laughs> I didn't like basketball because it wasn't fun for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, imagine getting the ball on an eight-foot basket and turning and almost able to dunk it. You couldn't dunk one and two. You had to really then pass the ball out from the position that you had, basically, and pass it back out and not score. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't fun for me in the basketball world. So I hated basketball because of that. But then there comes this guy named Roger Berge, high school coach that is going to take you then and mold you and shape you and let you understand and have fun with it and became, you know, obviously one of my best friends He's still living today and he's a great man, great person, but guided me not only from the basketball side of things, but life as well. Wow. Well, yes, I, I, I've heard you speak about him and he sounds like an amazing man. And uh, obviously him instilling the love of the game of basketball uh, in you is something that had a huge impact on the rest of your life. And really it translated to how you played on the basketball court because in high school you averaged 30 points, 19 rebounds, and seven blocks a game. I mean, that, that is was your average one year in high school. Uh, just unbelievable numbers and stats. You led your high school to a state championship your junior and your senior year. And you became the most heavily recruited college basketball prospect of your generation. Throughout all of that, how did you stay humble? How did you stay just, you know, Ralph from Harrisonburg and not let that affect you and and go to your head? Like I said earlier, when you grew up in a small town community with a lot of family members that, that guided you, molded you, Growing, you know, doing, going to a farm and doing work. I mean, I would always tell the story that uncles would never let me drive tractors because I was too tall, you know, in my junior and high school years. And then I would be able to lift square bales of hay on the wagon just for my workouts. Basically, that's what they were saying. But it was really work. They would get mad at me, basically, if I broke the string on the square bale of hay because, you know, one, that said that's money. And two, that's something we feed these cows with, et cetera. So, you learn a lot of lessons from growing up that way, a lot of work ethic, a lot of mental, mental toughness, uh, just a lot of stuff. So basketball became easy in that community for me because I, had, I was protected, one, by not only my uncles, but I had some cousins that wouldn't let me play with the big boys because I wasn't quite ready mm-hmm. because they were very physical and they were street players. So it was cool, but they saw a little bit more maybe what I could do. So they protected me. So they wouldn't let me play in the earlier games. I played in the last game and the lights would go out at nine. So we get to going to 11, we get to eight and lights go out. You couldn't play anymore. 
but then I started getting better and better and better and then got picked, you know, first to play. And so things start to happen, you know, in the ninth and 10th grade that were a little bit different than, you know, elementary school. And then, you know, with Coach Bergby and winning state championships, that work ethic and that stuff just was built naturally, not only from my mother and father, but the community I lived in and cousins as well that helped mold me and shape me, not only just from basketball, but a person as well. Well, you decided, and you we started this interview at the very beginning, talking about how important education was to you and to your family. And uh, I mentioned you were the most heavily recruited college basketball prospect of, of your era. Uh, what made you decide to stay in your home state of Virginia and attend the University of Virginia? Because you could have gone anywhere that you wanted in the country. Well, I could have, could have gone and then filling on your previous question, I mean, averaging 30 points and so many rebounding block shots wasn't a goal of, of mine to mm-hmm. achieve. I just wanted to win. Uh, we had great rival schools. We had great competition uh, back then. And everybody knew, you know, coming to Harrisburg High School that you had to compete at a high level because there was coaches from all over the country in my junior and senior year watching us play, you know, from the likes of John Thompson's to Dean Smith's to all the coaches that you can imagine. There might, there might be 30 or 40 coaches at a game in Harrisonburg High School. So it was fun, fun for fans to come see. Mm-hmm. And it became very exciting for the community that I lived in because everybody saw these coaches they saw on television. And their story after story, the story after, you know, this is over, after it was over from recruiting now that I know more about it over the years. There's local restaurants called Jesse's Quick Lunch. There's local, you know, areas and people and, that I know that work these places. And they always look forward to the game because, you know, Bobby Crimmins would stop at this place every time he came to town. Mm-hmm. And it was almost every other week coming through there trying to recruit me for Georgia Tech. <laughs> they would stop at this local place because they thought that I, they would see me there because that's one of the places we hung out. Mm-hmm. So it was fun for the for the for the fans, for the coaches, for the community. But I didn't realize it back then, because you know you you just want to be a normal student. You want to go to school. You want to play basketball. So I paid no attention. And then my high school coach had these great rules. You couldn't talk to me before a game. You could talk to me after a game, but you couldn't. You know all the rules were set up before there were NCAA rules. We set mm-hmm. our own rules up so that we could be just a normal student. My poor high school coach, the one who got the call that night and the letters went straight to him. I see him every day. He'd give them to me and he would get harassed all day long, you know, at school. And I can be a normal student, have fun. So it was fun to be able to, you know, grow up there. Like I said, see the coaches in the stands, walk in the gym, packed house, and no one would bother me because I was focused on playing basketball the way I wanted to. That's amazing of your coach to take on that burden, take it off your shoulders so you could just focus on being a kid uh, and uh, focus on the game of basketball, the task at hand as well. Um, so, so ultimately, what did lead you to the University of Virginia when you have all these college coaches coming to recruit you, woo you, right. uh, all the places you could go? Uh, why did you decide to stay in Virginia? Yeah, that's you know, the part of that uh, answer to that question, you know, was giving you a little history about the history of Virginia, mm-hmm. history of the community, history of all the coaches coming to watch us play. I mean, Coach Holland would tell you that his car was on automatic pilot 
every day to come to Harrisonburg and, and then realizing that he was under probably a pretty good amount of pressure to keep me in the state of Virginia as well. Because, you know, I would go to Kentucky, I would go to North Carolina, I went to Virginia Tech, I went on my college visits, and all of them were really, really good. And I would say, I want to go to that school. I, I didn't officially visit Virginia until they said, you got to come. You know, we want you to come on our last visit. Now, I had been there for many, many games, watch games, watch people. So I didn't really need a visit University of Virginia. I knew what was there, but mm -hmm. they needed to have that official visit. So going there, seeing the school, university, um, I get there on my visit, and we take a helicopter ride over the top of University Hall. And a guy named John, um, Hicks, Tom Hicks, had uh, painted with his fraternity Ralph's house on the building. So they wanted me to see that. The crazy part about it, they picked me up in a conversion van, had some hot chocolate and some donuts, you know, the 45-minute hour ride over to Charlottesville. And we go there, get on this helicopter. I'm like, I don't want to ride a freaking helicopter. It's just, why would I do that? Um, so we did that. And the crazy part about it, second, is that it was my weekend of my mother's birthday. Mm. And so... You know, I wanted to stay home for my mom's birthday. So I didn't even spend the whole 48 hours, you know, there. You get a 48-hour visit. You got to come and go as the NCAA rules were. So I cut the visit short, went home for my mom's birthday, and then after that. But going to Virginia, it, it, it was the reasons of being, one, close to parents, close mm -hmm. to people that could see me play on a, a nightly basis. The ACC was very, very tough back in that day. Uh, I could get a great education at the University of Virginia. Uh, Bar none was probably the best state school and one of the, you know, almost like an Ivory League school mm -hmm. even today. Uh, and then the coaching staff with Coach Holland uh, was amazing. Um, you know, I could do that as well with, with, you know, learning how to play, being free to play how I want to play, and then also be able to have somebody help develop me as far as a, a person as well. And, you know, he had his family, his wife and Miss Holland and his daughters as well. Now, like my sisters. So so that community, again, built uh, at University of Virginia, just like the community in Harrisonburg that I always talk about and became a very special place for me. Well, it, it really seems to always come back to family and a lot to education. And those were two of the main reasons. It seems like that you decided to stay in Virginia and your home state to be close to family and uh, feel welcomed and grow and mature and and develop not just on the basketball court, but away from it as well at the University of Virginia. And obviously, you, you made a wise decision. Uh, you had an incredible four-year career there. But when you first showed up, I mean, you're, you're going to visit the school and they've already painted Ralph's house on the arena on on the top of it on the roof you are literally the big man on campus you know over seven feet tall walking around what was your freshman year like because i could tell you what my freshman year was like uh, it was it was not like yours you had a very unique freshman and college experience well i mean you have to realize that that you know in 1979 80 you know wasn't social media Mm -hmm. You know, Nike didn't exist like it does today uh, with, you know, Converse and Adidas and shoe companies like that that existed. But you didn't have all the attention that, that you know, kids have today. I didn't play AAU. Um, you know, I, there wasn't any recruiting and scouting services back then. Uh, I went to a Bill Cronauer basketball exposure camp 
in Millersville, Georgia in 1979, the first one ever. And they spelled my name wrong. It was Wayne Sampson instead of Ralph on the <laughs> roster. But it had the likes of Clark Kellogg, Isaiah Thomas, James Worthy. It had the likes of 25 NBA players and half of those probably Hall of Fame players. Mm. So being, the, being there at that, at that time at Virginia and as a freshman, no one really knew the hype of basketball coming in except for the people attending school there that started to understand what basketball was about. Virginia wasn't that good uh, prior to me coming there. Um, they made it to the ACC championship in 1976. ACC was strong. Virginia was one of the weakest teams in the league at that point in time. They could compete, but, you know, wouldn't get too much further in the NCAA. My freshman year going to the NIT, we were still – not a great team because we were new to each other. Jeff Lampley, Raker, Terry Gates, Jeff Jones. Uh, it wasn't until my second year when we got Ricky Stokos, Dale Wilson, Kent Nealon, Craig Robinson, and, and the rest of us that kind of helped carry the load that we became more exposed to the world. Went in the NIT as a freshman was the start of it. Um, you got to understand, you know, we, we had a good season, but we wasn't good enough to win ACC title. We'd lost in the first round. We played Michigan and Mike McGee and that crew in the first round of the uh, NIT at home. And we just kind of built momentum after that. It took us a year to get together as a team. We go to New York and we play the running rebels of UNLV with Sidney Green and that crew, another guy that was in the same class as myself. And then we end up playing Kevin McHale and that crew in the finals and beating them as well. Uh, in the NIT championship in Madison Square Garden. Now, the NIT back then was still exciting. It mm -hmm. was almost like the NCAA tournament. You know, today is not that way, but back then, everybody, you know, I played in NIT. It was still also an exciting place to play. When the NCAA, it wasn't a big arena that they play in today, so it was just still small arenas, but NIT was very special. Mm -hmm. And winning that the freshman year elevated, you know, things for the next year for us. Then became you know, on the cover of magazines, you know, it's the tension kind of start to expose. So it was um, a transitional year for me from my June, my freshman year to my sophomore year. But the freshman year was just me trying to understand the college life. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to fail academically. I didn't want to fail athletically. You know, I studied hard. I worked hard. I worked out hard. But, you know, coming into college, you're not ready for that experience. No one's ready for your freshman year, uh, you know, if it's sports or even just a general student. Sure, sure. But I mean, all the attention was on you. All the eyes were on you. Any freshman has a, a, a challenge at times adjusting to college life. But I imagine the external pressure that was on you, this huge recruit uh, coming in, and then uh, you you lived up to the hype, uh, winning the NIT title your first year. And then you mentioned your second year really started to put it all together and led the team all the way to the final four in 1981 of the NCAA tournament. Um, you, as you mentioned, you were on the cover of sports illustrated and magazines. You were actually, I think pumping, uh, 90, 90 pound weights, you know, curls on the front. Talk about the, the transformation that you undertook on, on your body throughout your college career as well. Well, understanding the, the, you know, the background and, and, and my history as far as just the work ethic that I had as a young kid in high school and elementary school, um, the work ethic was already there. Um, I just had to be 
steered the right direction and understanding mm. what to do. So between my freshman season and my sophomore season, you know, I came into Virginia 198 pounds soaking wet. Uh, so, you know, being at the bang with guys like Sir Buck Williams and Larry Nance and all these other people, it was very hard to do, um, you know, physically in my rookie year. But I had likes of Terry Gates, Lee Raker, had some guys that protected me that was really, really good. And so I just went to work. Um, there was no pressure whatsoever from year one to year two. Um, I, I don't feel pressure today. I didn't feel pressure back then. Mm -hmm. The only thing I know how to do is work and work hard at what I do, no matter what it is. So I stayed in the gym between my freshman and sophomore year. We played every day. I worked out every day. I lifted weights. I ran. I did what I needed to do. They hired a guy named John Gamble as a weight coach. John Gamble was a power lifter. Uh, he is now probably the, I think he's at the Buffalo Bill still at the strength and conditioning coach. Mm. I worked out with power lifters and you know, he and John uh, coach Dunn. Uh, I worked out with them daily and they got me pretty strong very quickly over, you know, a summer and coming into my second year, then I was probably a hundred I mean, from 198 to 215 pounds, probably gained 15 pounds of sheer muscle. Wow. Lifting 90 pound dumbbell curls, squatting three, four, 500 pounds, bench pressing 300 pounds, you know, but it was daily every day. We played mm -hmm. every day. Um, so I was committed to, to being good at that point in time, but I also had the opportunity from University of Virginia, Coach Holland and staff to put people around me that could, could work with me and also understood what I needed to do as a person, which I didn't know. I just know I wanted to get better. Mm hmm. Wow. Well, again, that that work ethic that was developed in Harrisonburg on the farm and stuck with you your entire career really paid off. You had so many huge games and moments in your collegiate career from the game of the century against Georgetown and Patrick Ewing to matchups against uh, Michael Jordan, uh, the final four appearance, um, Elite Eight, your senior season. When you look back on your college career, is there a game or a moment or an achievement that stands out amongst the rest to you? Well, I mean, it's, you know, four years of, you know, sweat, tears, joy, playing on the court that, you know, I couldn't tell you how many points I scored in the game or how many rebounds I had in the game. I can tell you game experiences, you know, like playing Ohio State, you know, on, on national TV, Super Bowl Sunday, coming out against Clark Clerlock, Herb Williams, the Grand Brew Waiters, the three guys that played in the NBA at University Hall, where I twist my ankle within the first number of minutes of the game, go out with a bad, severe strain. Uh, and the trainer back then says, you got to play. You know, we, we want to see you play, got to play. So they fixed me up. They retaped my ankle. And I went out and had probably one of the best games of my college career. And we end up winning. So playing right. on national TV uh, on Super Bowl Sunday for three years in a row was real special. Uh, Rodney McCray, you know, was one of those guys that got beat on that day. And he always said, well, we know if you got beat, and I played with him in Houston, if you beat us on Super Bowl Sunday, we know we would go into the NCAA. We might go to the Final Four. So those type of games you play in are very heightened um, but very special, but you don't know how special because the stories go on and on for years after year after year, especially with like the Rodney McCray, Herb Williams and Granville Raiders, which I played with Granville as well in Houston. 
But those stories are, are strong, but the stories of, you know, coming back every year, having the opportunity to go to the NBA from high school to each and every year in college, just saying no to the NBA and coming mm-hmm. back, I need to get stronger, I need to get better, to graduating on the lawn on a, on a, on a Sunday afternoon that was pouring down rain, uh, to the memories of the people that uh, were classmates and friends even today, uh, a guy named Mike McCrory that created Mind Springs that had Earthlink. He was a wrestler at Virginia. He helped Mark Cuban become Mark Cuban mm. at that point in time. And so those stories are, 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 are more special to me than actually playing the game of basketball there. Wow. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing some of that with us. Um, you mentioned you had an opportunity to go to the NBA. You would have been the number one pick, you know, all, maybe any year you came out of college. We all know the accolades and one of the greatest college players of, of all time. Why did you decide to stay, to come back year after year and finish uh, your college degree and and play all four years at Virginia? Well, again, it goes back to my roots and at home where my mom and dad, we preached academics and sports and all those things. And you had to finish something. Yeah, I mean, I played piano when I was younger and you know, it wasn't for the teacher to tell my mama that, you know, his hands are too big to play the piano. It's growing every year, but she wouldn't let me quit because she paid for the lessons. So I had to make sure I got all the lessons, <laughs> but she wouldn't let me quit that. So after the lesson was over, she said, well, he's not going to be a piano player. So that always resonated, you know, later on. And then going to the high school, coming out of high school with the potential to go to the NBA to even my between my first and second year where Red Arback came to my parents' house and put a million dollars in the briefcase on the table and said, you can come play for the mighty Boston Celtics. Here's the million dollars you'll never get. I turned to my mom and dad and said, are we okay financially? And my mom and dad said, basically, we worked all of our lives and we don't need that million dollars. It's up to you what you want to do, but we're fine. Year after year after year, I had that decision to make. And so I evaluated it hard. Um, but also look back at the magnitude of what could happen. If I would have come out early, Kevin McHale wouldn't have been in Boston. Mm-hmm. If I had come out early, James Worthy wouldn't have been in Lakers. And if I came out the next time, Isaiah Thomas wouldn't have been in Detroit. So it wow. wouldn't have been a bad boy with Detroit and that whole, you know, the last dance with Michael and that whole yeah. day. Isaiah would have went somewhere else. Uh, Worthy would have went somewhere else. He would have been in the Lakers. So we would all, because we knew each other from the Bill Crow and our BC camp, uh, in 1979, we knew each other. We had each other's number and we would call each other. We didn't have cell phones. We called on the home number. We didn't have text messages. We didn't have any of that. So you had to call the home number, see if you could find somebody. And they said, Ralph, are you coming out? And I said, I don't know. So I'd make that decision last. And they would say, well, we're glad you didn't come out. But it was special for me not to come out because I wasn't quite ready. Uh, you know, being seven foot four, 220 pounds playing against Artis Gilmore that's, you know, six foot 11, seven foot one, 290 pounds, solid mm-hmm. muscle to Kareem, to Robert Paris. I wasn't quite ready to take that beating physically. Mm-hmm. So I evaluated that, but also evaluated was I on track to graduate. So a lot of factors were my family good, was my, my, my body ready, was I mentally ready, was I having fun in college, and was I on track to graduate and do the things I wanted to do and what I said I'd do, which was yes. And so I stayed each and every year. The last thing was it was a coin flip. And so one year was the Lakers versus Indiana. Lakers. For the first pick. That's For how the they used pick. to determine the first pick in the draft. It, it, it wasn't a lottery. It wasn't all the mm-hmm. stuff. You had the coin flip. 
And I said, am I going to take a chance to go to Indiana to play? If I knew I was going to Lakers, maybe a different story. But I couldn't take a chance to go to Indiana and play in Indiana and, and come out and play with a bad team. So it wasn't anything that was guaranteed for me. So I had a guaranteed situation at, at Virginia, so I stayed each and every year. Wow. Well, I mean, so much to unpack there. Uh, the chain reaction from your decision that it could have had on the future of the NBA and that we all know where you could have easily said, yes, I will take this briefcase of a million dollars from Red Arbach in my living room, maybe the, the greatest coach of all time. I mean, that is discipline for you and your family to say, no, we're, we're good. Uh, and could have been a Boston Celtic to you know, if you didn't want to take a chance, but the Lakers end up uh, with the number one pick that year and you could have been an L.A. Laker, a part of that whole team, you know, teaming up with with magic. Uh, and there's a lot of what ifs. Do you ever do you ever look back and and play that game? Think of the what ifs, what would have happened had I decided to come out, had I been a Laker, had I been a Celtic or or there's no point in that. I'm just curious how you think uh, about those scenarios. Yeah, I've only looked at what ifs with people when we start talking about them. You know, when I say mm-hmm. Isaiah or, or Worthy, what if, what if, and they oh, man, we're so glad you didn't come out. <laughs> but so I really haven't really drilled down into it very deeply or deep enough to understand what ifs. But I just knew that the ability to play at that level um, and, and I was going to play the NBA sooner or later as long as I stayed healthy. I'd come back and get my body together, get my mindset together to achieve the goal that I want to achieve, then things was, things was okay. There's no what if uh, for me. So uh, I did what I needed to do and had fun at doing what I needed to do. And it worked out well. And then I think it worked out for all the, it worked out for Worthy. It worked out for Isaiah as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only what if I had, if, you know, if I'd have, you know, if I'd have went to Kentucky, because I was going to go to Kentucky when I took the visit. Mm. And you had seven high school All-Americans. I went to Kentucky. There would have been seven high school All-Americans on one team. Wow. Amazing. But you understand now looking back, knowing the game of basketball and knowing the game of sports and all the rules and stuff that kind of circled back then, knowing the politics of it, there's a lot of what ifs that can be talked about because it was the stage was already set. Go, going to Carolina was, you know, in my, in my top five, you know, with – me and Worthy going to school at the same time. That, that's a big what if. Mm-hmm. Then getting, you know, a Perkins or a Jordan or, you know, because Mike was coming, that, that, that had been amazing ride right there at that point. But we wouldn't have the robberies that we had. We wouldn't have the competition we had. So I can't complain about the career and or have no what ifs that, you know, I can imagine that, yes, but I don't really have any. Should I play with Magic? Well, I played with an All-Star game and that was pretty fun. So, <laughs> sure. you know, there's no other what ifs. Sure. Wow. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, at the very beginning, one of the things you're most proud of is that you are a graduate of the University of Virginia Four years. You obviously excelled on the basketball court and so many people know about that, but um, it speaks volumes that above all of those incredible accolades that you're one of the only people in the world to have achieved, um, you're most proud of staying in Virginia and graduating from such a a fine institution. Um, And then 
it is was time for the NBA. You you couldn't stay for a fifth year. You'd already you, you played you four go. years. You, you graduated. So uh, there was no what if then. It was you're going pro. And just as you entered college with huge expectations, you enter the NBA with huge expectations to the point where even when you were announced as the number one draft pick, Larry O'Brien, the commissioner, he, his direct quote, he says, I have a big surprise for all of you, sarcastically. The Houston Rockets select Ralph Sampson. You don't see a commissioner say it like that. I mean, he was sarcastically like, of course, we know who the number one pick is. Uh, what was your welcome to the NBA moment? I mean, you're coming in with these huge expectations. Everyone knows you're going to be the number one pick. All eyes are on you. When did it dawn on you? It's like you're you're here at this next level. Well, again, I, I mean, I'd known, you know, my sophomore year, my junior year, my senior year, that I could potentially be the number one pick. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that, you know, was there every year. So every year I had to be more motivated. I had to be more hungry because, you know, that's not always the case. Some other player might get a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so every year in college, I continued to grow and develop the skill set. And I do remember, you know, it's the last year of uh, Larry O'Brien's um, reign as commissioner. David Stern came in the next year. And so he probably knew every year that, hey, the possibility of him being the number one pick was there year after year after year because the NBA was tracking that. So he made the statement. I seen the video and um, <laughs> it was a fun time and the felt for him in, in New York. You know, family was there, some friends were there, cousins were there. Uh, finally, 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 everybody said, now, you know, because of, you know, you can't go to college, as you said, another year. Uh, now it's time to get to the NBA. So that was a special night, special, special day, special weekend. Uh, you know, they hold your jersey up. Uh, you know, you see the pictures of Dominique, Antoine Carr out there, everybody there waiting to get picked and seeing where they're going to go, um, what team they're going to land, just like the normal NBA draft would be. So it's fun. I, I still have the same jersey from the draft uh, at my parents' house somewhere that they held up at that point in time was very special. But the, the, the biggest piece of that is, you know, what happens after. Yeah. Um, you, you know, that, that lasts for a couple hours. You know, you're wearing a, a, a suit and, uh, you know, new shoes or whatever. You know, I prepare for that. I get a call from uh, President Reagan at that point in time saying congratulations. Wow. But being a number one pick, you know, I'm in the hotel room. I remember to him to this day. You know, one pick in the draft, congratulations, that, that, and other. So that was special as well, Yeah, having the security and people around you. Leave there, go through the whole dog and pony, all the interviews. And then that night, we leave and go to Houston on two private planes. Ryder McCray was the third pick. I was mm -hmm. the first pick. So his family was on one little jet, and my family was on another little jet. You have to understand, coming from the small town of Harrisburg, I had flown before. Uh, my family hadn't, hadn't flown that much, mm. but we own a private plane. So yeah. you go from, you know, commercial plane to a private plane, whole different ball game, right? Whole yeah. different level. And that's two side by side. Like you can look out the window, like there's another plane over there, which you normally <laughs> don't see. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we did that. We landed in Houston and we end up proceeding, going to the summit at that point in time. Now it's Joe Osteen's church, but uh, went there. And there was probably 15, 17,000 people there waiting for me and Rodney McCray to come there. 
to introduce us to the Houston area. Now, I understand we hadn't signed a contract yet. And yeah. We're just going through the hoopla of the drafts and being introduced to the city at that point in time it was very special. Now, understandably, they had gone to the championships a number of years before that with Moses Malone. Mm-hmm. and the cast of characters that they had to play against Boston and lost. So they had a pretty good team, but they had just gotten rid of those players. Moses was in in Philadelphia where they won a championship with the junior serving. And so they had some, some I call them leftover pieces of players, mm-hmm. uh, Elvin Hayes and Caldwell Jones, Major Jones, guys that I knew and watched when I was younger. I mean, I watched Elvin Hayes with the turnaround jump shot, right? Yeah. After year after year in the 70s. So, I'm like, I'm going to you know, play with the mighty Elvin Hayes. I'm going to do this and another. So not understanding all the, the things is that the number one pick, which you don't know, but you see all this. You see the hype. You see the stuff at that point in time. And then the arena is closed. We're back in the hotel room. What are we going to do now? Well, let's go out. Let's hang out. Some of the players come get you. Let's, let's take them out and you know, hang out and party a little bit. So we do that. And the first things that we talked about even before, we get to this nightclub and we see a guy named Alan Level, which we knew his face, but we didn't really know him. He said, no corner smoking cigarettes. And we're like, <laughs> right in the corner, like, like, dude, we're in trouble. This is our point guard and he's drinking and smoking cigarettes. We're like, okay, what, what have we gotten ourselves into? But that was the NBA <laughs> yeah. uh, back in those days. Guys that, you know, they could do that and smoke and they could go play. And then... <laughs> I have to realize, even after the fact, me and Rodney talk about it all the time now, that our first year there, you could you could drink beer in the locker room. I mean, Budweiser and those people were the sponsors. So at every game, there would be, you know, beer in the locker room. And people thought, uh, Caldwell Jones, God bless his heart, he rest in peace, he would have a, a six-pack of beer after every game because that would <laughs> punish his body, he'd say it. So <laughs> nutrition or not, drink or not. But anyway, that's what we saw when we first got there. And we're like, what have, what have we gotten ourselves into? Is this the NBA that we thought and loved? And um, it, it was, but behind the scenes were, you know, you had to readjust yourself mindset and make sure you did the right things on and off the court because you wanted to be at a high level. And the league was changing back then as well. So mm-hmm. things changed. In the next couple of years, they banned uh, any alcohol from the, from the locker room at that point <laughs> in time, although they had the financial sponsorship with Budweiser, which was huge. Yeah. So they, they took it out the locker room. So – that's our first experiences of me getting drafted behind the scenes in Houston and understanding the game of basketball at that level because it was totally, totally different than I expected. Wow. Wow. Uh, some great stories. You've got so many. I mean, we could we could talk for hours. Uh, you come in your rookie year with these huge expectations, uh, a lot of hype, and you live up to them, averaging 21 and 11. You make the all-star game. You compete in the slam dunk contest. Not You don't often see a seven-foot-four guy in the slam dunk contest. Uh, uh, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, again, understanding the, the the lay of the land in the sports back then, even today, I mean, all that stuff is fun. The, the you know, the league was evolving. It was, um, uh, you know, Magic and Bird were taking over to some extent, trying to get the league back to where it can make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the league was hurting a little bit, I do believe. And then, you know, I get there for my first <laughs> story I just mentioned about the draft. And I play in every city that I played in, uh, I had to have an interview, you mm. know. So even before that interview, before you play, it was very taxing on myself. We had 
you know, a, a sports information guy would come with me everywhere I go. I land, go straight to an interview to that team and, and talk about the game. I mean, uh, 41 interviews, you know, yeah. on the road trying to figure that out. So I started to understand the game of basketball a lot more than the game on the court, mm-hmm. the game around the basketball, and understand that, you know, how do you manage this whole process? How do you understand the process? How do you take what you learned from college to the NBA and refine a little bit more? You got to eat right. You got to sleep right. You got to work out. How do you do that? There's nobody teaching you that. You know, we didn't have, we, we didn't have a, an athletic trainer, mm. uh, a strength and conditioning coach. We didn't have that. Right. We had a guy that taped your ankles with a trainer, yeah. but we didn't have anybody to teach you all the other things. You just so, had the guy dropping off beer in the locker room. Well, that, that was the manager. That was right, right. Before, before yeah. that was on ice at halftime for sure. <laughs> it work. So I understood that stuff before that. And then all-star game or any other accolades, I was already prepared for. Mm-hmm. Knowing that I would get it as a rookie. But, you know, it came because of the way we played. You know, you, 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 as a rookie and number one pick, you have to play every night. Um, you, you can't take nights off and you have to perform. Now I got veterans like a Caldwell Jones and Elvin Hayes on my team that were guiding me through the process. So I learned a lot from them of what to do and what not to do. And they taught me well. Um, so I got tutored basically from veterans, my, my, my rookie year that most people don't get that helped me become an all-star and rookie of the year. I was going to ask you just that playing with these guys like Elvin Hayes and, uh, did they mentor you, show you the ropes? And then later in your career, were you able to play that role for any of the younger guys on your teams? Maybe when you were, you know, in Golden State or Sacramento, uh, did other the younger guys look up to you and you were able to pay it back? Well, that's the nature of the, the league. That's why you see guys even today that are on the end of the bench, you know, Tyson Channel, stuff like that. They They want veterans to be there to help the rookies so mm-hmm. it's one of those things that has been historical over the year that the nba and i was able to do that at golden state and and sacramento i mean my sacramento years i had we had two or three number one picks i mean mm-hmm. the first round picks and the call uh, Dwayne caldwell anthony bother travis mays mm-hmm. uh lionel lionel um lionel simmons from yep. the south so we had four rookies coming in that were really really special so I'm the, the elder statesman at that point in time. And so they were my rookies. So mm-hmm. they carried my bags. I, 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 we hazed them just like I got hazed as well. They carried my bags. They had to bring stuff to the room. I looked out for them. Even at that point in time, which was, you know, 10 years later or so, eight years later, uh, that, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you got to play every night. So they respected me. And even today when I see them, you know, Lionel Simmons would say, big fella, big fella. You know, the NBA is so great. I get to drive around the Mercedes Benz. You know, how wonderful this. I said, man, you still slow a foot. You got to work on your game. The shot is raggedy. And you know, I would tell him the truth, but he had to understand how the game was played. So they, 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 even today, when I see them, they respect that. They respect what we went through as when they were rookies. So it's fun to do that. And it's still done today. Like I said, it's still yeah. done today. That's a beautiful thing about the game. It just keeps paying it forward generation to generation. The links, uh, the the knowledge that's passed down, the the mentorship um, that you were a part of as well. Um, back to your Houston days, we talked about your incredible rookie campaign, rookie of the year, and then you follow that up. Uh, the Houston drafts, Hakeem Olajuwon, talk about some what-ifs there too. I mean, it comes down to a coin flip uh, for the first pick, and 
Houston wins. So obviously they take Hakeem, who went to college there, and pair you guys up, forming the Twin Towers. But had Houston not won the tip, uh, the coin flip, and it goes to Portland instead, there's a good chance Portland takes Hakeem, uh, number one. And then you, you guys might have taken Michael Jordan. There's a lot of what-ifs there, too. That's a pretty crazy scenario. Well, there's a big-time what-if there. So you have to understand, myself and Hakeem Olajuwon go way back. Um, we, you know, played the game of the century you mentioned earlier with, um, Patrick Ewing, mm. cap center. We want, we win that game. We go to Japan and we plan a series of games, one with Louisville and the Houston Cougars at that point in time as well with Keem, like Michel, Clyde Drexler, et cetera. I get pneumonia right after the, Georgetown game. So I don't get to play in the Lajuan game. Oh, wow. Uh, but we see each other. We hang out a little bit. We know each other. Clyde and I, we're all the same class, et cetera. So we, we went back to then. I watched them play against NC State. I won player of the year. I went to New Mexico. We saw each other there as well. So we had some crossings, you know, um, meetings that we talked about basketball a little bit. But, you know, he's a different type of guy back then. Didn't speak much. You know, he was getting his feet wet in in the um, NBA, I mean, in college basketball as well. But, you know, then my first year in Houston, you know, we were playing the summer in Fondy and uh, with Moses and the whole deal as well. So I got to know him a little bit. And then understanding the NBA today, I didn't know it back then, but I know more today than I, I did, obviously. But the team came to me and said, basically, if we get the number one pick, you know, how would you like to play with Akeem Olajuwon? We would move you to forward. We put him at center. So there was designated, you know, one through five, you know, positions back then. Today, it don't make a difference if you're one, two, three, four, or five. And they said, I said, sure. I mean, I, I don't mind my skill set. I want to play. I want to run up and down. I want to play that way. I want to play back to the basket. Okay, great. So they came and said that, and they drafted him. So it was a you know match made in heaven to me because we had two guys. Because every night you had to play against two big big guys. That's the way the league was going. Robert Pears, Kevin McHale, mm-hmm. Bill Lambert, Rick Mahorn. Yeah. You know, uh, Tree Rollins and, and Dominic, I mean, you had people that play against. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Maurice Lucas. Yep. So you had guys you had to play against every night. They had two big guys, one power forward and one center. Mm-hmm. So we were not the prototypical power forward and center. We were guys that could play, run, jump, shoot, and play in and out either position. So I cherished the opportunity to play with Akeem. And I think we made a, 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 a we were double trouble. That's what he'll, he'll call it, double trouble. And we had fun. We had fun doing it. And I think uh, we respected each other. But, I mean, amazing. Probably one of the best big men to ever play the game. Actually, now, as you see back, he had a run that was amazing for a number of years there, back-to-back championships. So I, I cherished that moment to play, and I think we were pretty good. You were very good. I mean, immediately, your sophomore year, his rookie season, uh, you averaged 22 and 10 and a half. You made All-NBA second team an all-star again, not only an all-star, your all-star MVP in a game that features Magic Michael, Larry, Kareem, Moses, Isaiah, Dr. J. You stood out amongst the best of the best and uh, won all-star game MVP. Uh, And then the following season, your third year in the league, you guys lead the Houston Rockets to the NBA Finals. And obviously everyone knows the big historic shot um, 
that you hit in that uh, game five, the buzzer beater to defeat the Lakers. But not everyone knows kind of the backstory leading up to that. You had just gotten through with a grueling seven-game playoff series in Denver, mile high, not a lot of oxygen and air. And then you come and you lose game one to the Lakers. How were you guys able to bounce back from that to then after that first loss? I mean, you just ran through them and and obviously leading up to this historic shot, uh, a big moment in, in your NBA career. So you have to understand how things happen before that. Yeah. Um, we'll get to the shot in a second, this, that, and other. But at the end of my second season, you know, you know, trying to figure out the league, we get a team, we we make an adjustment, we got to get used to each other. I thought we were ready to to take another level, but I thought the team, the the the, the front office and people like that wasn't letting us do what we need to do. We were ready and poised at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So there was an article in the newspaper that came out that Coach Bill Fitch made me read in front of the team. Mm. Now, you can't say these things. You can't say those things. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm fresh and new, trying to figure stuff out. Why can't I say these things? I mean, you can try to tell me what I need to say and what I don't need to say. So, again, I had Elvin Hayes and Caldwell Jones guys to tell me that, you know, you can't, you know, you can say what you need to say. So they guided me through the whole process, understand that this is a game, but also it's political. So I understood that going in. You know, to my second year, my third year, we, we draft the team, which made it very special. We want to win now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was used to winning. I'm not used to losing. I lost 20 games in my college career. So I'm, I'm used to winning. I'm not used to losing that many games. And Keem was the same way. So let us go. Unleash us. Bill Fitz, don't call every play down, down, you know, down the court. Let mm-hmm. us run. Let us jump. Let us do what we do. And he wanted to control everything, which we didn't like. So going through that process made me understand the ability to what's the team all about. I can recall sitting on the bench with Bill Fitch after a timeout. They sit, sit beside him. And usually, you know, you come out, you don't want to sit beside the head coach. You know, you want to be as far away from the head coach as you can because you're not playing. But that was the only seat I sat there and I could analyze every play. And he said, how do you know that? I said, remember when you sit me down when I was a rookie and you made me watch those videos of you coaching Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Mikhail and tell them what to do. I said, I watched those videos for a reason, but also understand the game. So he started to respect me more about the game at that point in time. Not till then, he respected me because I knew the game inside and out. I could tell what was going to happen before it happened. So then we started to get on a little bit more of a roll and start to win game after game after game doing things. And then we get that year with the team that you alluded to, to the playoffs. And I felt that we were really good and poised and ready to do what we need to do. And we get in a situation in the second, third round, we get to um, Denver and, you know, we plan now you go from Denver to Mile High Stadium. It's so bad elevation wise that you suck. The king would have to have oxygen every game because mm-hmm. of the elevation. And so we play, we get to game seven in Denver. And that's when all the stuff for me kicked in with the team, understanding and saying, look, guys, we can do this. We can get it done. But we need more than just me and Akeem, Ryan McCray. We need more than our starting five. Now understand that we had no point guards. Yeah. We, we, we go down uh, John Lucas early in the season due to drugs. We go down, we got Mitchell Wiggins and Lewis Lloyd, two of the best ever on the break 
I can recall just throwing the ball out to Lewis Lloyd, Pat, and I, I didn't have to run past half court. Mm-hmm. They were most of the time not in their right mind, I should say, at that point mm-hmm. in time, right? So we knew this going in. So all of us just band together and said, what do we want to do at the team? So myself and the team, you know, have a, we have seven games. We playing hard. Keem goes out, he fouls out. I'm playing pretty well. It get foul trouble. Granville Waiters, that goes back to my Ohio State days, played against Ohio State. Huh. Craig Elo, that went on and played at uh, Cleveland, that obviously against Michael and that whole crew as well. <laughs> Rodney McCray, Jim Peterson, mm-hmm. um, uh, Robert Reed, those guys won that game for us because we banded together. We understood what we had to do. Then we go to the Lakers. So all that stuff leading up to it came from way back when to that mm-hmm. to that game to go on the Lakers and get that tail beat because we were just so overwhelmed and tired. They were there resting, having mm-hmm. fun in LA. They the champ. They this that and the other. Kareem, Magic, Michael Cooper, Worthy. Oh, they 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 having fun. They kicked our tail their first game. We regrouped that same night. Said they got this one. We will regroup. We had a couple of days off. We had a practice. We had a conversation. And then we win the next four games. Um, you know, they could they had they didn't have a chance. I talked to Magic every now and then about this thing. He said, "You you made that lucky shot." I said, "It was a lucky shot." But we all make lucky shots. We all dream of that when the game when the shot. I said, "But if we went back to Houston, we were up three one. Yeah, it had been three two. We didn't kick your tail in Houston anyway. So we 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 help you not have to take a trip back to Houston on the plane and go back with your hair between your tails. So he, he laughed all the time about that. But that's kind of how that happened over the years and how that led to that game. Yeah, that's amazing. The whole backstory leading up to that, that there may never have even been an opportunity for that shot had you not gotten the whole team to rally together right. uh, in that game seven uh, against Denver to lead to that moment. Now, Everyone has seen it on YouTube uh, a million times. A lot of Laker fans, they replay it over and over, the, the buzzer beater that you hit, you call the lucky shot, this one second left turnaround. And right after in the post-game interview, uh, they say they, they ask you, uh, how do you feel you said it's the best experience that you've had in your basketball career? Is that still true to this day when you look back? Is that moment, I mean, hitting a buzzer-beating game-winning shot to send your team to the NBA Finals – doesn't doesn't get much better than that. Uh, do you still look back that uh, as fondly at that moment in your career? No, I mean, it's, you know, obviously, you know, you, the retrospective now, they look at all the moments. At that point in time, that mm-hmm. moment was, you know, everybody's dream, I think, to, to win a game. I mean, you, you, you hit a shot like that to take you to the finals of the NBA. I mean, it's, what more can you ask for at that point in time? The game was very intense. I mean, Kim got kicked out the game. We had a fight. I mean, this, this, the yeah. everything was around it. It was a, it was a battle, with a, a grueling battle. But you know, the, what I remember more about that game is not the shot. It's Michael Cooper laying on the ground, like you know, in agony yeah. because they lost. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I now got a relationship with Michael Cooper, other than playing. Like, dude, you lost anyway. And we just we we still <laughs> clown about it and understand it. But the emotion that he shares with that shot and that game because they wanted to win. They end up regrouping. You mm-hmm. said, well, we grouped, we won it twice. We won it twice in the next two years. So they got mad as well to everybody. But there's moments in, in, in that you look at from being drafted, you know, the going to Virginia and have to, having to come back to school every year, being drafted number one to all-star games. Even I talked to Magic about this, as I said before, like, Magic, you gave me the all-star trophy because you passed me the ball. 
Mm-hmm. So you, it's more about that camaraderie, you know, after you finish playing yeah. than the actual moment of a shot. So it's a lot of moments, even up until you make it to a Hall of Fame. That moment right there is probably one of the top three special moments in my life. Uh, you know, other than, you know, my kids and, and, and watching them play sports as well or, or top there as well. So it's a lot of moments after you finish playing for sure that you look back at. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, you hit that shot to go to the finals against Boston and you talked about uh, physical grueling. I mean, it, the game of basketball was a lot different then than it was today. A lot tougher, a lot rougher. That was a very physical series. Um, there was a lot of ejections. You obviously got in a pretty famous scrum with uh, Jerry Seasting uh, in the game. Uh, when you look back on that NBA Finals, do you have do you have any regrets? Um, how do you feel about it? I mean, to come so close, and as you said, you've in your career uh, you, you made it to the Final Four, but not to the the mountaintop. Um, I, how do you look back at, at your time coming so close, so physical, so grueling, laying it all on the line, so many emotions at stake? Well, you don't. Um, I mean, it, you know, I think anybody that looks at their playing career and that would say that if did I did I give it my all? I mean, mm-hmm. talk to Carbon on about this sometimes. Did I lay it on the line? Did I give it my all? That team was better at that point in time. But I have no regrets again about the way we played, how we played, how we approached the game, even from college. You know, did I give it my all at that point in time? Yes. Every game I played in, I was mainly ready to play. I was mainly tough. My work ethic was there. I was in shape, and I was ready to go. So losing against the Celtics, you know, everybody has to understand, you know, the 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 Garden, the Celtic mystique, the Rockets, It's no, there's no other better time in basketball than the era I played in. Uh, you know, it's bigger and better now as far as the arenas and the, and the mystique and the social media, all that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. But playing at Boston Garden, going up in the elevator with, you know, the, the stock boys and the people that went with rats and roaches in the elevator, you got to go up to the heated locker rooms that they would do in June that the Lakers always complain about, to the floor looking really, really good on TV that had all these holes and divots at dead spots, to playing in the garden – I mean, who got to play in it will tell you there's nothing like nothing like playing the garden, nothing like playing the forum in LA, nothing like playing in Houston when we played there. The arenas were, you know, such a different atmosphere than the day. Mm-hmm. It was a, a game and not just an event. Day's more of an event to go to a game and you see people there, but the history of the game, playing in the spectrum in, in Philly against Julius and, and Moses and that crew were there, just to play in that intimate setting. There's nothing like that moment. There's nothing like that in, in, in the history of sports. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You're right. I mean, it's, uh, it's romanticized now, looking back at that era of basketball, really laid the foundation for the NBA that we know and love today. Uh, you, you paved the way uh, for big men and, and for, for basketball. I mean, you were there, a big part of history. Um, after that, kind of the rest of your career, you battled a lot of uh, knee injuries. Um, uh, how how was that? Was that trying for you? I mean, what what was that like uh, when you still were effective, but not not the same way as you had been, and you'd been very healthy your entire career? Describe those obstacles and the mental toughness that it takes to try to continually overcome those and and come back from physical setbacks. 
Well, I mean, again, I was, you know, as we went going through this, this show, uh, mental toughness is part of injuries. I mean, injuries mm-hmm. is part of the game. No matter yeah. what it is, where you get drafted, where you get traded to, it's part of the game. You have to understand each and every situation you go through, each and every phase you go through about life, no matter what it is. And injuries are part of that. So my injuries, uh, my, my body style, my body type, you know, getting banged on and banged on and banged on, et cetera, as, you know, especially in that era was, was tough. And injuries were a part of, part of that. So I just went to work. You know, I, I, I got a torn uh, cartilage in my, in my left knee, my first injury. And we had gone to the playoffs in, against Boston the year before. I think we could – I thought we could get back there. So, you know, I probably should have sit out a year. Guys a day would, would, would not have come back. I came back in eight weeks. Wow. You know, played, got in shape, came back in eight weeks. We lose to uh, – we lose in, a, in the Western Conference, uh, Seattle. We, we told – Derek Minifield turned the ball over. We should have won the game, and we lose. But he gets teased about that often. But I thought mm-hmm. we could get back. Mm-hmm. So you pound and pound and pound on it again and again and again. You still want to play. You get back, get back, get back. Probably should have sit out a whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, today, guys would have, you know, load management, would have sit yeah. out a year, just all the stuff, whatever. We didn't do that. We played mm-hmm. with broken fingers, with cut hands, with stitches in my eye, with goggles on the whole deal because we love to, we love to play the game. So there's nothing that I look back on as far as injury is concerned. I, I was injured. I worked out. I tried to get back. You know, a number of times, one injury leads to another one, especially that type of injury. Uh, when you don't have cartilage in the knee, it's kind of like, you know, you don't have a break in your, in your, on your car. So it's, yeah. you, you, you can't stop. So I just stayed tough. I stayed mentally strong. And I worked my tail off to get back and play and play and play. And I got back to a certain level, but it wasn't Ralph Sampson of, you know, as the rookie year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you did still uh, have you played nine years in the NBA, uh, played Golden State and Sacramento, uh, and then you even played in Spain. Uh, what what was that like? You know, uh, it's a long way from Virginia, uh, living in Spain in a different country, different culture, and trying to kind of get back in shape and get your body right, still playing the game that you love so much. Well, again, going back to work ethic and, and understanding, you know, it was a cultural thing for me to go into Spain. It was the ability to play basketball in another country uh, that was uh, exciting for me. Uh, it was also the ability to see and take uh, my uh, two oldest kids with me to understand a different world. They, was, they were younger then, but that, that was fun. And the experience of that compiled with another way to play basketball, almost like we play football you know, in this country, we only play once a week. So for me, it was, it was fun. I could get back to uh, training. I could get away from the NBA a little bit and the grueling NBA. And I could focus on, you know, just getting back for myself and working out. I mean, I worked out every day. I lifted weights every day. I trained every day. I ate, you know, great food. I, I got friends even today from over there that still call, email, talk to every now and then. So the experience was amazing for me to see the culture and the excitement about basketball in another world other than the NBA. So obviously it has evolved these days um, because now it's a worldwide game with players from all over the world. Um, But for me to go there was the start of, you know, at least something to see other than the NBA. Yeah. Well, the game of basketball is taking you all over the world to meet so many incredible people, go to so many amazing places. And you always come back to your family. You mentioned them so many times throughout this 
chat that we've had and, and knowing you all the time. And I've got a chance to, to meet uh, some of your kids and um, see, you know, how, how great they are. What did it mean to you to have your sons standing beside you when you were inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame? Well, again, that's, um, that's the way I am. I mean, I look, I look at each and every situation, try to analyze it the best I can to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was one of those moments that I wanted my high school coach there, which he was, my college coach there, were certain people that I, I wanted in that moment, not only from the biggest Hall of Fame and the Naismiths, but the Virginia Hall of Fame, the state of Virginia, the Harrisburg High School Hall of Fame, and even the University of Virginia Hall of Fame. I always had to make a statement about how special that was to me, not just Ralph Sampson, the basketball player, but also Ralph Sampson, the person. Also had the ability to have a name of Roger Berge put on my high school basketball court. Hmm. It didn't need to be Ralph Sampson, it needed to be Coach Roger Berge. So that we got that done as well. So the meeting of the Hall of Fame, bringing my sons there, you get to pick you know, who you want to stand up for you because you got to have somebody stand up for you that's already in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. with you. So on the other hand, side, I had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Julius Irving, and Charles Barkley. I wanted Bill Russell there as well, but due to health reason, he could not be there. But Bill Russell is the best basketball player ever to me. And he called me before that. I actually played for Bill in Sacramento because he was the general manager. Mm-hmm. And so we have that relationship even today. Um, I call his wife, I call him and see how he's doing. He's in the late eighties doing very well, but having my sons there to show them, you know, how to respect the game. So I had them on my left side and building them on my right side. So they can understand, they feel how special basketball was and they had the opportunity to do that. So it was special for me to have them there. That's very special. That's, that's nice. Um, well, Ralph, it's been amazing kind of recapping a lot of your your career uh, and getting to know you. I think our listeners uh, have hopefully enjoyed this as much as I have. I got a couple rapid fire, quick hair questions to really get to know Ralph Sampson here, just away from the game. Ralph Sampson, the person. I want to know, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Chocolate. Chocolate. Okay. What's your favorite kind of pie? Apple. Oh, all right. What's your dream meal? If I said I, I, you can have anything you want, you know, for dinner tonight, we're getting the best chef in the world to prepare it. What do you want? Sunday dinner at Sarah Sampson's house. Okay, and what what's served at that dinner? Well, you got macaroni cheese, you know, candy yams, chicken, green mm. beans, you know, sweet corn, rose. That's the best meal ever. Sunday dinner. Is the, <laughs> sounds the best like meal it. Ever. It sounds good. All right. If you could bring one musician's entire catalog with you on a deserted island, but just one, whose music are you going to bring? And a friend of mine named Kurt Whalen, the jazz saxophonist, actually, uh, that uh, I know and love. And we met in Houston uh, my rookie year and we became yeah. friends and even friends today. So he's, he's amazing um, to listen to and understand his career. And how he reacts to uh, you know his his industry as as far as music and mm-hmm. his jazz saxophone, uh, it's just amazing. I can I can talk about it for days. But he, he's a very special person. Smooth, just like you too. That's right. Uh, all right, you've traveled all over the world with the, through the game of basketball and in your life. But if there's one place that you still have not been, you could travel anywhere that you've never been. Where would you want to see? Um, I mean, I, I never really had aspired to go anywhere or to see anything. 
Um, I mean, there's still a lot of places in this United States of America that we live in that I haven't seen. Uh, but I, I, I will go anywhere and see anything, but there's not one place that I can pinpoint today except for going back to the farm. I love going back there on a day-by-day basis. It's my special place. Yeah. And, you know, if I never get to go anywhere else again in life, I'll go back there and I'll be at peace. So the farm is my, my, my place, my legacy and who I am. Yeah. Wow. It really is. What, what does the state of Virginia mean to you, Ralph Sampson? Uh, it's another state in, in the 50 states in the United <laughs> States. But when, when uh, in, my, in my parents' house in the trophy case, there was a plaque from the Governor Charles Robb at that point in time when I was in school. And I became a state resource. So all this stuff that was happening, trying to get me to go to the University of Virginia. So I am a, a legally a state resource from the state of Virginia, from Governor Robb. And so the state means a, a whole lot when it comes to that. But also the the current governor coming to the farm recently and passing the Air Bill Act uh, to preserve and protect, especially African-American farms, because we're losing a lot of them today to protect that so they want to go do stew disputes is very, very special. Well, and you're doing incredible work uh, and continue in the community, in your farm, in Virginia. Um, why does giving back, why has that always been so important to you? Uh, that's, you know, that's what I'm used to. That's what I was raised. That's what, you know, family taught me. Uncle was on the farm to, to everywhere else has, uh, made me understand that you got to get my, my grandfather on my mother's side. I didn't get the opportunity to know. Uh, I've heard a lot about him uh, to my grandmother and grandfather on my father's side, understanding who they were, you know, their work ethic, their, their, their disability to, to just obtain what they did back in those days when it was tougher for them. Uh, from a racial standpoint to segregation, to desegregation and survive and, 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 and have the ability to be successful. Uh, I've I, I learned all that. I've studied all that. I understand it, but also understand how special it is to give back and to, you know, my uncles did it for me and, and bringing the, the youth of our community up through the channel, channels of success to go back and, and reach somebody else and do the same thing that someone did for me. So it's very special for me to do very special for me to do that. Well, you've done incredible work through your foundation winner's circle. Uh, you've raised uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for, for charities, for uh, cancer research. Uh, you continue to do great work and use your platform in your name to give back. And uh, I, I appreciate it. And I know countless others do as well. Uh, our final question here, as you know, Ralph, on Center Court, pay homage. Is there some person that you want to pay homage to who helped pave the way, inspire you, make you the man you are today, and uh, uh, helped you reach all the levels of success that you did that you want to give your respects to? Well, I mean, there's many people that I think anyone can pay homage to uh, in their life, and depending upon what time of life they come into your your world, right? So mm-hmm. it could be from high school coaches to college coaches to NBA coaches. But, you know, for me, it's my mom and dad that you would have to understand who they are today, you know, and how they raised us, how they taught us, how they educated us, and how they motivate us to be the best we can be. Each and every day, if it's just making your bed, you become successful. So I pay homage to my parents. 
Wow. Well, that's amazing. And I know you're in Virginia right now and uh, you, you see your dad all the time and you guys uh, still close, still on the farm. Uh, Ralph, thank you for uh, letting me be a part of this next chapter in your life. Uh, I love doing this show with you, uh, getting to know you uh, a little bit better as a person every single week. Uh, you're an incredible man. Uh, we're an amazing basketball player, but what you've done away from the game is even more impressive. Definitely Hall of Fame uh, in my book, for sure. Well, thank you so much. As you know, as you know I appreciate you and your work we put into the podcast and show but you know right now we're just beginning so it's more special things to come so everybody listen watch out you know my co-host jason zone fisher which is a real name uh, yeah per se but uh we got a lot of stuff in store and you know watch it on social media but i enjoy this and i appreciate you and our team that helps put this together and uh look forward to many more and more special shows and increasing this to make it even bigger that's right. We're just at the beginning. And uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher. As Ralph said, please do follow us on social media, Ralph Sampson 50, Center Court 50. I'm Jay-Z Fish. We'll let you know about all the exciting guests that are coming up on future episodes every single week here on Center Court. And please, you've listened uh, this far. We appreciate it. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. Leave a message, a comment. And if you have any questions for Ralph that you want me to ask on future episodes, write those down too. Send them to us and we will be sure to get them on a future podcast. Ralph, thank you for opening up today, sharing so many incredible behind-the-scenes stories, moments, and memories. Uh, it's been a blast, and I can't wait for more coming soon here at Center Court. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.